Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for joining us today. Sarah, how are you doing? Good. Just came back from a work trip in Denver. Uh, I got to see this really cool art exhibit at the uh, Denver Museum of Contemporary Art. And I got to go to the aquarium and pet manta rays. Yeah, it seemed like you had a really fun time. Yeah, how are you doing? I'm okay. Um, I got a lot kind of going on in my life right now between different work that I'm doing. And I'm just, I think, starting to get over my COVID brain fog. Mm. But I just wish I was like a little more on top of the things that I have to get done. And I have only myself, really, to blame for not being so. Yeah, I feel like you give me a hard time for, like, taking on projects and taking on projects. And, oh, no, I'm overwhelmed. Let me take on another project. But I feel like you've just done this to yourself as well. Well, I think it's, like, a curse of, like, not having a full-time job. So, like, I feel like, oh, yeah, I can take on a bunch of little things, but then, like, the little things add up and well, suddenly it's so much. And it's a problem if like a bunch of stuff is, for lack of a better phrase, due at the same time. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm sorry that you're feeling overwhelmed. Yeah. You know, um, I kind of wish that there would be like some kind of like uh, invader who I couldn't see who could possess dead bodies and then therefore I would be able to have them help you. Well, that was a tortured segue, but it was a segue into talking about the movie that we are watching tonight, which is Invisible Invaders from 1959. Now, originally we weren't going to cover this movie um, because it is pretty sci-fi. Yeah. Um, it's the bottom half of the double feature with uh, last week's sort of movie, um, The Four Skulls of Jonathan Drake, but we got... Uh, an advocation? A request. A request. You forgot the word request last time you talked about this too. Well, listen, um, we got a request from longtime listener Fern, uh, who gave a pretty impassioned justification and, and argument for it. So I will read their request here. They say, I just finished listening to The Four Skulls of Jonathan Drake, and in it you briefly talked about and dismissed its double bill partner, Invisible Invaders. I think it's horror enough to be on the podcast. The invaders are invisible, so in order to make themselves known, they possess human corpses. It's the same concept as Plan 9 from Outer Space, but with a higher baseline of competence. Even if you don't end up considering it horror, it at least belongs in the conversation as a stage of zombie movie development. And I, yeah, especially for the fact that it would fit into that conversation around the development of uh, Haitian zombies to George Romero zombies. I think sure. it's worth a watch. Sure. So I don't know about the base level of competence thing. Um, <laughs> I mean, are you saying because Ed Wood is better or are you saying because the people who made this movie are less than? Um, okay. Here's what I would say okay. based on what I know about this movie. Okay. Ed Wood was trying to be more ambitious than he had the capability to be. And 
you know, whiffed it. The people who made Invisible Invaders have made good movies and are just phoning it in and mm. not putting any effort in. I see. So this was, uh, like Jonathan Drake, also directed by Edward L. Kahn and produced by Robert E. Kent. The script is by B-movie writer Samuel Newman. The shoot for this movie was quick and cheap. Uh, I think they had a two-week shooting schedule, um, and the costs were held down by the reuse of assets from other movies. Classic. Um, And also famously the fact that the aliens are invisible. Yes, of course. That's a big cost-cutting measure. Now, at the end of the film, um, when the aliens die, their, their forms are revealed dramatically, and they are just the um alien suit from it terror from beyond space okay that, uh paul blaisdell made yeah um he wasn't like paid again for the use no. of the suit because the producers of that movie are the producers of this movie yeah so in their minds they own the suit and the suit just happens to be reused yeah it's not like paying someone for their likeness or something exactly All footage of the aliens causing destruction all around the world is stock footage, um, (laughs) as is the car crash footage in this movie. And the movie even reuses its own footage whenever we see the invisible aliens make tracks in the dirt. So maybe I should wait to ask this question until you are finished. But is this a case where the producers looked around and they said, okay, we got the suit, we got the stock footage, person who wrote this come up with something? I don't know. What I do know about this movie is that um, nobody making this movie thought of this as a creative endeavor, really. Um, This was product. Mm. This was, we need a second half to the double bill that we produce, and we don't really want to spend a lot of money on it, and let's just whip something out quickly. Okay. The cheapness also extended to an unwillingness to hire stunt performers. So uh, the movie's star, John Agar, had a scene where he had to drive a Jeep uh, with his co-star Robert Hutton inside, and he nearly overturned it in a scene where he was supposed to, like, break and swerve. Um, Ultimately, there was no accident, but, you know. And John Agar, he's been in... He was in, like, the Creature from the Black Lagoon movie, right? Yeah, so we definitely have seen John Agar before. He was in Revenge of the Creature. Ah. As well as uh, the mole people. Yeah, I feel like his star has fallen. Yeah, so he was on contract with Universal, um, but he broke his contract because he was tired of doing science fiction movies. Oh, no. But the typecasting stuck. Uh, We've also seen him in the indie film Daughter of Dr. Jekyll. And by this point in his career, he's basically trapped in B-movies. Welp. His co-star actor Robert Hutton was the lead in The Man Without a Body. Uh, The female lead in this movie is played by Jane Byron, uh, who is best remembered today as the mom on the Patty Duke show, but she appeared on TV throughout the 1950s and 60s. Reappearing on Scream Scene after some time away is actor John Carradine. Oh, uh, he's been just doing like the garage shoots. Yeah, he's been slumming it for a while. Uh, By this point in his life, he was on his third marriage and between natural and adopted children he was up to eight sons (laughs) how many daughters zero zero eight sons eight sons my eight sons i think oh i don't remember how many of them are his versus like his various wives from 
like previous marriages or whatever, but eight. Um, the last time we saw Carradine was in 1957's The Unearthly, which we did not like. Um, he had also in 1958 appeared in the framing sequences of the American version of Half Human, where he kind of like is the guy telling the story of the movie to the other cheap American actors. And in 1959, he starred in the title role of a film called The Cosmic Man, uh, which was basically just a low-budget indie ripoff of The Day the Earth Stood Still, <laughs> mostly shot in a hotel lobby. Mm. I mean, that's better than just the hotel room, right? That means they had to get hotel permission. Also appearing is Robert Langton, uh, who we know from The Snow Creature, The Incredible Shrinking Man, and It!, the terror from beyond space. And we also have in this movie, Eden Hartford, um, who is an actress, but is best known quite frankly for being Groucho Marx's third wife. Any particular reason? Like, is she like a Paris Hilton kind of like celebrity? Like it's just like, you know, Groucho Marx had a lot of wives. She's the trivia question answer to who was his third wife. And okay. none of her like acting work is very like notable. How does Groucho Marx compare to Henry VIII in terms of wives? You'd have to ask a, a Marx Brothers fan. Okay. You mean you're not a Marxist? <laughs> <laughs> so Invisible Invaders was released on May 15th, 1959, alongside The Four Skulls of Jonathan Drake. Uh, Variety reviewed it and said that the movie's best feature was the title and that uh, it was best suited for an audience of children. Well, we are children at heart. In 2016, it got a Blu-ray release from Kino Lorber. Um, so that's how we're going to be watching it. Okay. Well, folks, hopefully you can find a copy to watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude. And when we come back, we will discuss Invisible Invaders from 1959, directed by Edward L. Kahn. See you on the other side, everybody. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Invisible Invaders from 1959, directed by Edward L. Kahn. Uh, ben, first thoughts? First thoughts, it's bad. <laughs> Second thoughts, it's fun? Uh, it's funny. Yes. To laugh at. Yes. I had to look up if this had been on Mystery Science Theater 3000, and I don't think it has. That is a missed opportunity. This film is, like, a choice pick. Yeah, that. this is probably the most, like, we've riffed watching a movie in a while. <laughs> this definitely fell into the so bad it's good category for me. I don't know if I would say so bad it's good, but so bad it's fun. Yeah. Yeah. Which is sort of what that means. So, the story, though. <laughs> yeah, let me give people the synopsis. For sure. Oh, no, the development of nuclear weapons and the arms race. What a, like, pertinent, topical thing to talk about in 1959. And we see that Dr. Carol Neumann, who is played by John Carradine, is killed in an atomic lab explosion. 
Okay, I want to talk about this for just a moment. Yes. Because the way this happens <laughs> is we get some stock footage of particle accelerators. Then we see John Carradine in a lab coat at like a lab bench with like a bunch of, like a chemistry set because science is just chemistry. And he's like mixing some bottles. And then there's like a superimposed explosion. And then a spinning newspaper is just like, Carol Neumann's dead. And <laughs> legit, I was like, did John Carradine show up for one shot of this movie to get blown up just so they could put his name on the poster? Like, because I didn't know where this was going. Um, and that, uh, that thought was just immediately hilarious to me. Absolutely. Uh, now, with this explosion... Um one of Dr. Neumann's colleagues, Dr. Adam Penner, uh, resigns from the Atomic Commission Board or something like that, like an advisory board or something, because Penner is like, hey, government, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. I'm upset about my friend's death. And the, and the government is like, no, I think we're going to keep doing this. Mm -hmm. And Penner's like, well, I resign in protest. Mm -hmm. This is, by 1959... The United States is definitely um, in the we're in too deep stage of nuclear arms development. And I get that we're in the Cold War. Yeah. But this topic and framing is what I would expect for like early 50s, you know? Yeah. It's also really strange, like the idea that like Neumann blew himself up in an accident that is like basically attributed to like overwork. And that it was like a nuclear accident of yeah. some kind, like there's radioactive fallout and stuff. I guess what I'm saying, and I'll say this now so I don't have to repeat it later, this movie doesn't know how nuclear weapons are made is mm -hmm. the thing. Mm -hmm. like, Or how weapons are made, really, in general. Like, It just sort of thinks that scientists like pour test tubes into one another for a while and then, hey, here's a bomb. <laughs> It does not care to know sure, how weapons that's a are very made. good distinction to make. So it's after the funeral, um, and an undead Neumann visits Penner at night. Neumann? <laughs> and the undead Neumann says that um, I am actually an, an invisible alien possessing this man suit uh, to tell you, Penner, that we... The invisible and aliens are going to invade. We uh, have crossed the stars. We've colonized the moon, you know, for all of its rich cheese resources. <laughs> but you don't see it because we're invisible. And now that Earth is like doing nuke things, we're going to colonize you. And you have 24 hours to convince the world to just straight up surrender. Because if you don't, it will mean the annihilation of the human race. I want to say this is the first sign that this movie is poorly written, but like, mm. because I was sitting here listening to this speech and I was like, wait a minute. Okay. They're aliens from another galaxy. Mm -hmm. They came to the moon thousands of years ago, like tens of thousands of years yeah. ago. The moon used to be like a populated world with yeah. people and shit. They killed everyone there and then they set up bases and like a civilization on the moon they've been there ever since they've got like spaceships coming and going all the time we never see them because they're invisible and they've just sort of watched earth 
with its like teeming millions and and like abundant resources for all these thousands of years and gone eh we won't even bother with you know this Doing planet anything. that's right there um until we start making rockets and then it's like oh man them going into space could really like muck up our stuff so. yeah muck up our space lanes and stuff so let's <laughs> conquer them and, and murder them and it's like i just find it really hard to believe that like an imperialistic culture would just sit there for thousands of years and be like no no no, no. these guys are fine we'll leave them alone like it's some kind of like human reserve where like they're just like you just watch but you know you don't touch it's like in lilo and stitch where earth is a nature preserve because of mosquitoes right it's just like it would have this conquering thing would have been a lot easier if you'd just gotten it over with like a few years ago but also (laughs) then this whole idea of like okay we're gonna find one dude and tell him he's got a day to convince everyone on earth to surrender or else. Yeah. And Penner, you know, the reason why they choose him is because he has been a proponent for peace, i.e. stop nuclear weapons. Um, and they're like, yeah, they'll listen to you. Boy, do they not. Um, now, before uh, Undead Neumann leaves, he does demonstrate his invisibility by um, holding like a piece of tinfoil uh, that suddenly is like, appearing in his hand and then disappearing in his hand using like some kind of like ray gun or whatever. Now, Penner has a daughter named Phyllis uh, and um, her friend, Dr. John Lamont, is also here. Notably, Dr. John Lamont is not Tony Stark, despite looking a lot like him. Yeah, like exactly like how Don Heck drew Tony Stark in the 1960s. Um, Now, Dr. Lamont is... uh, in the same field as Penner and Penner's like, listen, I can't go back to the government because they won't listen to me despite the aliens thinking that they will. I love that they picked a disgraced proponent of peace. <laughs> disgraced proponent of peace makes it sound like someone was like for peace. And then it turned out they were actually like a warmonger. <laughs> sure. Yeah. No. <laughs> Just like he, he resigned from the government. They're not going to listen to him now. So Lamont is like, okay, I'll go to the government. And he is laughed out of the room. Those 24 hours go by and the the aliens are like, okay, we're going to do it. But let me give you a couple more warnings. (laughs) Well, yeah, like Penner goes and begs them to like give him more time or do more warnings. Those warnings don't work. So then the invasion starts with a whole ton of stock footage. My favorite thing about the warnings is that like, the aliens they go to a hockey game at one point but i yes. think there's one oh yes they have a plane crash they take over like a dead pilot from a plane crash so that that dead pilot can go uh take over the like radio announcer booth at a hockey game which is wild because um the hockey game isn't playing with helmets yeah, hockey so, wasn't played with helmets back then. Yeah, but I was just like, where are their helmets? I just think My it's... inner mom coming out being <laughs> like, don't forget your sweater. I just love how like they choose, they are determined to choose the least effective means possible of getting They've only been out. studying Canadians and they're like, okay, <laughs> hockey, Everyone got will it. listen to a hockey game. <laughs> but it's like we went from, hey, one guy convinced the whole world and then it turned out like, Oh, we could have given a warning over like radio and TV ourselves 
And when we do it, we're going to do it at a hockey game. Hilarious. Um, so, you know, the invasion has started. So the government is like, okay, select scientists from like around the United States, from around the world. We'll put you into individual bunkers so we don't have to have extras running around. <laughs> and that includes Dr. Penner with um, his daughter, as well as Dr. Lamont. Now, these three get picked up uh, by Major Bruce J., uh, played by John Agar, finally showing up 25 minutes in. <laughs> I'm sorry. I fucking love John Agar in this movie because, as we'll get into, his character has sort of just, like, an immense amount of, like, toxic masculine swagger um, to him. And so it just gives this wild energy of, like, the guy with top billing showing up 25 minutes into an hour-long movie and then proceeding to, like, immediately just start, like, slapping his dick around, being like, <laughs> everybody listen to me. I'm the big cheese now. That was his gun. Oh. <laughs> Gives another meaning to, uh, to uh, shooting from the hip. <laughs> so... Major Bruce J, he's here to take these folks down to the bunker so they can work on a way to stop the invaders uh, slash the walking dead. Because as more invaders come down, they are possessing recently dead people. And so you have these undead, as they say, the walking dead walking everywhere. Yeah, they don't use the word zombie because zombies are a Haitian thing. Yeah, a Haitian voodoo thing. Yeah, so the walking dead is ironically the most common phrase used to describe them. On the way to the bunker, they are confronted by a farmer wanting their jeep uh, and, like, wielding a shotgun. And Major J shoots that man dead. Yep. It turns out that in the days of alien slash zombie invasion, uh, army soldiers will be given the rights of judge, jury, and executioner. <laughs> Extrajudicial murders, courtesy of the American army. <laughs> they discover... That the possessed bodies are radioactive. Yeah, because it's the fifties. Yeah, everything I is. I don't know. So they devise a plan to catch one of the aliens uh, in order to like experiment of how to make them visible, because then we'll be able to fight them. Of course, uh, this is the movie getting the idea of invisibility and intangibility mm. mixed up because just because something's invisible doesn't mean you can't shoot it. Yeah, but like. Also, the way that the aliens like possess people demonstrates that confusion as well, right? Because yeah, because the working theory is that they enter the body through their pores. Yeah. Like a gas? Yeah, like and when we we, you know, spoiler alert later see the aliens like emerging in and out of people's bodies, like it's just like a ghost possessing someone. Yet we know they have physical form. Because they like make tracks and shit as they walk. Yeah. Yeah. But this movie doesn't care about those details. No. no. So they have this plan and basically they will spray this acrylic spray on a walking corpse in order to, you know, capture the alien in a tangible way and it won't like dissipate from the body to escape. We spin our wheels a little bit testing this out, but eventually it works. And so then they start doing tests um, because the working theory, again, is that, you know, there must be some kind of like ray of light uh, along the spectrum that will turn them visible. But these tests are going nowhere. And Lamont is just like at his end. He panics and then like starts throwing things and people are like, 
what the fuck are you doing, Lamond? And then there's like a big scuffle. In that scuffle, parts of the lab explode. And the loud sounds and the alarms and everything hurt the alien. And so then they go, oh, it's not about light rays. It's about sound waves. Mm -hmm. So they create a sound gun. Mm -hmm. I guess a cooler name would be Sonic Cannon. Yes. I'm going to say Sonic Cannon now. Yeah, now you're thinking like Marvel Comics. <laughs> Pay me, Marvel. <laughs> um, Reed Richards has been using Sonic Cannons for years. <laughs> and it turns out the Sonic Cannon not only makes the, invis the invaders visible, but also destroys them and turns them into bubbly goo. <laughs> you so mean soap foam? <laughs> So they destroy the nearby invaders, their nearby spaceship, which just straight up explodes from the sonic cannon. Um, and then they are able to radio to the other scientists to say, like, it's sound and we defeat the invaders. Lastly, we see that we are at the UN. It's a peace conference and everyone's like, oh, thank you, Penner and team for figuring out a way for us to defeat these invaders. And the narrator, because yes, we've had a narrator this whole time, uh, says that, oh, yes, it's so good to see the world working together to unite against a common foe. Working together for a common cause. Thanks, Mandarin. Um, that's the end. Yeah, the, the defeat of the aliens, like, en masse happens off screen. Yeah, of course. Like, we, we call up the army, like you said, and be like, hey, here's how you make the sonic cannons. And then the narrator is like, and so the aliens were defeated. Yeah. Also, um, you know what's great about a sonic cannon? Mm. Its ammo is invisible. Yes. <laughs> and therefore cheap. I, I'm trying to remember... Every alien invasion movie I've seen where the answer to destroying the aliens was sound. And there must be more, but I can only think of three right now off the top of my head. Yeah. Invisible Invaders. Okay. Invasion of Astro Monster. Yeah. And Mars Attacks. Yeah. But like, I don't know, just the fact that it was at least done twice for real before Mars Attacks did it as a joke. <laughs> Also, one other thing. Not one other thing. There's going to be a lot of other things. Um, as the narrator is explaining and describing the invasion of Earth, it will range from like, oh, these dams in America were destroyed. Also, Finland and Russia were exploded. Yes. And then a town was destroyed. Thousands were killed. Yeah. Like, these... These, why are you conflating these things? Why are you listing them this way? The footage of the Earth being invaded is all just stock footage, as Sarah mentioned. It's like stock footage of buildings being demolished or fires or earthquakes or floods. Um, and the narration that happens over these tells us that like this invasion's happening over a three-day stretch. And by the end of the third day, humanity will be wiped out. And I think we fix the problem like midway through the third day. Yeah, it's like Majora's Mask rules here. Right. Which makes me think that like the world that we've ended up with is a world with um, like a sixth of the population remaining. If that's like the timetable. Which yeah. is pretty grim if you think about it for more than a second. Which the is, movie doesn't. No, yeah, the movie doesn't <laughs> think about anything for more than one second. This movie is very dumb, 
Mm-hmm. I think the thing that makes it, at least for me, kind of fun to watch is that even though the script is bad and it's filled with a narrator explaining things as you watch them and it doesn't really make a lot of sense, the movie has like a commitment to what it's doing. Uh... Like everything is just like, like the movie is the people making the movie are lazy. Yeah. Um, but like the movie itself, maybe it's because of that narrator. Maybe it's because of John Agar's performance. But the movie's just like, yes, this is definitely exciting. And what you are watching is happening and it's good and real. And you're sitting there and there's this disconnect between like what the movie is telling you and what you are watching that creates, I think, humor, which makes it fun to watch. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't feel like there's any kind of inertia here Mm. um but everything just keeps going regardless of whether it makes sense regardless of whether it kind of fits into what we've already talked about Mm. and it just is like as you said in the context setting it's just product it's just content being fed onto a screen yes now i will point out john agar's acting is pretty fun uh because he he's trying to act like yeah. he's trying and then the rest of the cast is like I-, I will react to what you are saying now i think um i did enjoy philip tongue's performance as the very put upon dr penner um he's yeah. just mildly having a breakdown through the whole movie yeah he has a very good sad face yes major bruce J is just this hilarious toxic masculinity icon I was reminded watching this movie of how much John Agar reminds me of Michael Keaton in terms of his appearance. Yeah. But like the swagger and the voice he's doing. Full um, John Wayne. Yes. Specifically, he's doing like John Wayne in Sands of Iwo Jima, which mm-hmm. um, John Agar was in. Uh, <laughs> was in a, he really? Yeah. In like a minor role as one of the soldiers. Right. So like he's definitely on purpose do it's Michael Keaton doing a John Wayne impression is the hero of this movie. If you want like, I don't know, an encapsulation of late fifties, American toxic masculinity, like watch this movie because this is a soldier, an American army soldier who like shoots civilians. And like when another man in the scene, Dr. Lamont is expressing that, in all honesty, he is kind of afraid of the fact that there are walking dead outside. Major Jay just is like, pull yourself together, man. What are you, some kind of sissy? And then like Phyllis, who hasn't really like, there's not been anything of like, oh, Lamont is her fiance or anything, but they've been the two opposite gender, you know, people of the same age who've been together for the whole movie so far. So Major Jay's like, Yes, I totally forgot about this. Uh, She, (laughs) Phyllis is like, yeah, I'm studying like psychology or whatever in college. Um, So maybe I could learn something from you, Major, uh, with like how to deal with people in a crisis. And he goes, yeah, what about you and Lamont? Are you studying each other? Yeah. um, And it's like, why would you word it that way? So you know that that scene that you get occasionally in old movies that they make fun of in like airplane where it's like, pull yourself together, swap. Yeah. Like that's major J's like whole deal. And that scene is being like, wow, what a, what an expert studier of human psychology. But then 
basically the romance plot, such as it is, between Major J and Phyllis can essentially be summed up as like Major J being like, hey, baby, get with the hero, lose the zero. And then Phyllis being like, oh, a real man. And like, that's basically the deal to the point where later when Lamont is like, (laughs) this is never going to work. Like, we can't find an answer in time. Like, we might as well give up now. Like Phyllis in like a line that is actually kind of shocking for a 1950s woman uh, in a movie just turns and says, shut up, John. <laughs> like, it's like, oh my God. Yeah, it's hilarious. It's, it's it's fucking wild. And yet I really enjoyed John Agar's performance because he is just totally committed to the bit. Yeah. Like he is like, no, I am absolutely going to be just the paragon of swaggering douchebaggery. Except... Um, they wouldn't see it as douchebaggery. No, and that's what makes it like yeah fascinating. Is like you need to watch this movie to understand that like this asshole, like you are meant to be looking at this asshole and like getting like weak between the knees. I thought you were going to be a bit more crass. So I thank thought you. about it. I really, honestly thought about <laughs> it, and then I pulled back at the last minute. Um, on the other hand, I think Robert Hutton kind of blows it as Dr. Lamont, he's supposed to come across as like the weak, you know, oh, he feels things and thinks things. So he's not a real man kind of thing where like, he's the one who's going to crack under the pressure and like him cracking under the pressure shows that like Jay is a real man. Cause he just powers through. But none of his cracking under pressure is like hysterical enough for it to seem out of place. It seems like, no, yes, it makes sense to be concerned that the dead are walking the earth. Yeah. I think if I had to guess, The problem here to me seems like Robert Hutton is an actor used to playing the lead in B-movies the same way John Egar is. And for like the first half of the movie, you think like Lamont is the young male lead of this movie and he kind of plays him that way. And so when it comes time for like when Lamont is supposed to like crack up, like the script is saying, hey, we need you to be a sniveling whiny man baby. And Robert Hutton is like, well, no, I'm a leading man. Yeah. And so it just doesn't really work. Yeah. The the movie also feels like out of touch mm. for a lot of reasons. Uh, so the first half of this double feature, The Four Skulls of Jonathan Drake, it was interesting with that movie how it's like, oh, look, these older guys and specifically the plot point of like they have to be 60 years old. And it seemed unique um, that they were like committing to that in the rise of the teenager, right? In this movie, where it's like this same kind of thing of f- focusing on like an older generation, it just feels out of touch with what is the ongoing trend mm. and feels lazy. Like they didn't put any thought into it. They just went with what they know. Like, okay, we've been ragging on this movie a lot, deservedly, but... Everything that Fern said about this movie is true for the most part. Like, yeah, yeah. It, it very much is like what Plan 9 from Outer Space might have looked like with a more coherent script and a more like hinged director. Um, <laughs> it's also definitely a predecessor of like George Romero style zombie movies, like the shots of the shambling Walking Dead with their like gaunt 
faces and sunken in eyes and like dirty clothes kind of, you know, walking in crowds around. And that's supposed to be like scary. That feels very George Romero. The whole like premise of we have this small group of survivors who are like holed up in a location with the that they can't leave because the zombies are outside but the real drama is about how like each one of the people inside is going to like crack or not under the pressure that's night of the living dead that's dawn of the dead that's day of the dead even the thing of like capturing one of them Mm -hmm. and bringing it back to experiment like reminded you very much of day of the dead I was going to ask if Day of the Dead was the one with like the zombie and the the yeah. collar and the military bunker. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I always get them all mixed up. Except that in Day of the Dead, the equivalent character to Major J is the villain yeah. because it's the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. Well, rightfully so. But it is really odd to see like a lot of things, like a lot of things that this movie does, I have seen in later better movies. But the movie also isn't like looking ahead, right? They almost feel like accidents because this movie is so set in being a a day the earth stood still kind of remake. This is definitely a zombie movie in terms of if you're saying like the The evolution of zombies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's also definitely like an alien invasion movie. But in terms of like the way it is structured and where the emphasis is are in like the characters and the action this to me is more like, you know, your war of the worlds, your, um, this Island earth, mm-hmm. like those sorts of movies where it's all about like the scientists racing to find a solution to the alien invasion and lots of talk about like other galaxies and shit much more than it is. Like, I don't think the emphasis is on the horror of the walking dead enough for this to really feel like a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Like, I think Plan 9 feels like a horror movie more, um, even though I I do agree that I think Plan 9 is actually more incompetent than this. But I think it feels like a horror movie more because Ed Wood is placing that gothic emphasis on The Walking Dead where he's like, ooh, spooky graveyards and like, ooh, vampire. Um, yeah, whereas this movie, it's, there's no mood. Yeah. There's no attempts to scare. Correct. Uh, and the idea that it's the walking dead, like from the farmer's point of view, absolutely a horror movie, Yes, but that guy gets killed the first thing he shows up. Yeah. And he's not a POV character. Yeah. Even though, like I said, his style of character is very prescient of zombie apocalypse style movies. You know, Mm -hmm. the idea of the biggest danger to us going through this apocalypse is not the zombies, but like the crazed, desperate other humans. Right. Yeah. So it's it's very interesting to see this movie. So I am glad we watched it, but I feel like we are leading to saying this is not a horror movie. That was sort of what I was feeling. Although I, I will say the gore effects on The Walking Dead are pretty cool in this movie. Yeah, the makeup on like the pilot, for example, was really neat. They commit to making them look dead. Like the farmer who gets shot has a bullet hole in his head for the rest of the movie and and things like that. Um, When I say for the rest of the movie, it's because that dude comes back as a zombie. Uh, (laughs) Just in case that wasn't clear. He also looks... He's just like lying on the ground in the background. (laughs) That one extra just raking in the money, just having to lie there. He also looks a lot like later era Harrison Ford. So if you've ever wanted to see Michael Keaton (laughs) pretending 
pretending to be John Wayne fighting Harrison Ford as a zombie. Like, this is the movie for you. Especially when he has the gaunt makeup yes. on. It's so good. And then, of course, you were like... <laughs> saying fugitive quotes i I did not kill my wife (laughs) and then major j is just like i don't care blam (laughs) um (laughs) i really enjoyed watching this with you in a riffing fun make fun of it kind of way but it's it's not a good movie no no so do we want to rank it or are we saying miscellaneous i am saying miscellaneous uh i will acknowledge um that the four skulls of jonathan drake are currently ranked at number two two three Mm -hmm. um if we were to rank this i would put this below that Hmm. um but i do not think this is horror enough to rank yeah i would agree with you i sort of had some thoughts on ranking if we decide it was horror but i i think that on the i'll know it when i see it test this is not horror yeah well, folks, if you want to see the other movies on the miscellaneous list, uh, you can go to ScreamScenePodcast.com, uh, and that's also where you can find links to the many other episodes that we have mentioned today. If you would like to contest our non-ranking of this movie, uh, you can drop us a line through our Ask box on Tumblr. You can also reach out over email at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore ScreamScene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed. You can leave us a rating or a review to help the algorithm know to promote us to other people. Or you can skip the middleman and promote us to other people yourself by talking about the show on social media or around the water cooler, if those still exist. The other way that you can help the show is by heading over to our Patreon, uh, where you can help support us financially uh, at patreon.com slash podcast. You can become a patron of the night for just a dollar a month. Or you can sign up to higher patronage levels like the $5 and $10 levels. At $5, you're getting weekly bonus audio cut from previous episodes, whether that's like goofs or bloopers or bits of research that turned out not to be relevant or what have you. Um, And then at the $10 level, you get access to like regular um, like written pieces, whether they be uh, short stories, which is what I did a lot of in the early days, or like critical analysis essays, I guess, which is what Sarah's been doing a lot of recently. Uh, We just had a new gothic retrospective from Sarah go up about The Invitation and Dracula Daily. Um, And patrons of all levels get to vote in our monthly polls about our horror-adjacent bonus episode for each month. So October's poll is up now to decide what our bonus episode for October will be. I think the options are a lot of like spoopy kind of Halloween, but not horror movies. Yeah. Also kind of like related to Halloween in some sort of way. And the one that is currently in the lead is the um, adventures of like Ichabod and Mr. Toad. Oh, you love that movie. (laughs) Well, listen, I I do have enjoyment. You you love 50% of that movie. I just hate Mr. Toad so much. Yes, I know you do. <laughs> um, okay, interesting. Well, if you want to head on over and contribute your vote to that poll, uh, you'll need to become a patron of the night. So head on over to patreon.com slash Podcast. So what are we watching next week, Ben? Next week, Sarah, uh, we're watching something Japanese. It's okay. either going to be Kaiden Kagami Gafuchi, if I can find it, or it's going to be Yatsia Kaiden if I can get subtitles for it. 
or it's going to be Tokaido Yatsuya Kaiden with a lot of maybe me talking about those other two movies in the context setting if I can't get those two movies wrangled into a version that we can watch. So listeners, if you have a line on like a way that I can watch those two movies or if you can get me like a subtitles file for Yatsuya Kaiden, not Tokaido Yatsuya Kaiden, I'd be very appreciative. Um, But no matter what, the next episode is going to be something Japanese. Mm. All right. Well, we will see you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.